This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the third show in our series on race and racism, and we're going to shift our focus. The first two shows were part one and two of an interview with Natasha Wilson, and we talked about what it is like for her as an African-American woman to live in the whitest state in the country, Maine. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked her when she teaches classes on racism, whether she's ever had to explain racism to people who aren't really open to learning about it. Yes, I guess is the short answer. Yes, I've, I've had that experience. Um, and there are some people where, I mean, you give them some information and it takes some time for them to process it. And then there are people who are just not ready to receive it. And I don't, I also feel like as a person of color, like it's not my job to like get white people to get it. When I heard her say this, it reinforced something I knew was right, that it's the work of white people to unlearn their own racist attitudes and stereotypes. And so we are devoting the rest of this series to studying and learning about the concept and experience of whiteness, white racism, and white privilege. People who identify as white are the ones who need to work on ourselves internally, to see the racism that we were born into in our culture, that we've absorbed through television and the media and the experience of growing up in mostly white communities. My own belief is that through no fault of our own, We've all learned to have racist ideas, and they operate under the surface where we don't even know they are affecting our relationships, our behavior, and our fears. For myself, I can tell you that this series on racism is probably the series that I have been the most nervous about doing. I know that these learned racist images are in the back of my mind, and I was afraid they would come out in some way and expose me and make me look really clueless and bad. Even though part of me knows better, I was afraid that my ignorance about what it's like to be a person of color in this country is evidence of my privilege as a white person and therefore made me feel ashamed and kind of afraid to reveal it. So that was when I realized that I am the very person who most needs this series, who needs help to start talking about racism, who needs help to move past the shame that can make me avoid it. I need to get in there and when I make mistakes, learn from them. I hope you'll come with me, and as we enter into the next series of interviews with white people who have led the way in talking about and thinking about what it means to be white and the privilege that whiteness has given us in every area of our lives, privilege that we don't often realize because it's all we've known. There's no better person to kick off this part of the series than Peggy McIntosh, whose groundbreaking essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, lists the ways in which constructions of race benefit white people socially, legally, and economically in our daily lives. Her essay includes a list of 46 things that we as white people can take for granted in the United States. So before we begin our interview, I wanted to read a few of them to you to give you a sense of it. Number seven, when I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. Number 13, Whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. Number 15, 
I do not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. Number 18, I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer letters without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty, or the illiteracy of my race. Number 24, I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to the, quote, person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. Number 27, I can go home from most meetings of organizations I belong to, feeling somewhat tied in rather than isolated, out of place, outnumbered, unheard, held at a distance, or feared. Number 46, I can choose blemish cover or bandages in quote-unquote flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. These are things I have taken for granted most of my life without even knowing I was doing it and that I was lucky. I didn't even notice it was happening. And that is one of the things that makes white privilege and white racism so hard to talk about. It seems so normal to white people that we don't even see it. There are many more examples in Peggy's essay, and at the end of the show, I'll let you know how you can find it and read the rest. My guest, Peggy McIntosh, is an American feminist and anti-racism activist, the associate director of the Wellesley Centers for Women, and a speaker and the founder of the National SEED Project on Inclusive Curriculum. SEED stands for Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity. I began our conversation by asking her when she first decided that anti-racism work was something that she had to get involved in. It was when I realized that what I had been faulting men faculty for was very distinctly related to me as a white faculty member. I noticed that the men considered the reading lists of college courses completely full, even though all the books were by and about men. And I didn't at that point think about anything except that I would like to get women into the curriculum. And then I came to see that white, that black women in the Boston area had a lot to teach all of us white women about 1979 and 80 when they wrote that white women were oppressive to work with. And I hadn't thought of myself as oppressive to work with. It was a big shock. Right. In fact, my first responses back then in 79 and 80 were uh, two, and they embarrass me now, but I felt first, I don't see how they can say that we're oppressive to work with. I think we're nice. Right. My second thought, which was really quite racist, but I didn't know it at the time, was I especially think we're nice if we work with them. Right. And six years later, I began to remember that those had been my responses, and I was now mortified because I realized I was expecting thanks for working with people that I had been taught to look down on. And I realized, oh dear, my niceness doesn't cover my patronizing attitudes. And I really do think I'm a superior knower. 
And that's because I was taught that. And the men think the syllabus is full when it only has their work in it. In a college course, they think the reading list is full when it's all male. And that's because that's what they were taught. And I realized as I wished the men would admit women into college course readings, I must admit women of color with respect into college course readings. And I had a lot of work to do on myself. So I want to come, I want to ask you about something you just said when you talked about being a knower. I heard your TED talk where you, where you talked a little bit about the socialization of men to think of themselves as knowers and that ultimately the socialization of white people to think of ourselves as knowers. And what, what do you mean by being a knower? Well, it goes at the tail end of a whole litany of uh, things I noticed. The men, first of all, can't be blamed for thinking that the reading list is full without our half of the population, because it's what they were taught. And I was taught also that men have knowledge, and men make more knowledge, and men publish knowledge, and men profess knowledge as professors and men run the big research universities and the university presses. So they have drunk in, as I had also drunk in, in the 50s, that knowledge is male and men are knowers. The alternative to men's being knowers would be that women were knowers also, and in those days, that was not believed. And then I realized, in the case of race, white people have knowledge, white people make more knowledge, white people publish and profess knowledge. So we have been given to understand and we have learned it. Knowledge is white and, and white people are knowers. So what a, what a profoundly humbling moment that here you are realizing that you are in the same relationship to black women as, as white men were to you. I mean, it sounds like it was this big moment of, of getting it in, an, in a whole new way. Yes, all of those moments were pretty terrible. They destroyed temporarily my sense of myself as a person who had earned everything she had and a person who was intelligent, hadn't, any, hadn't missed any of the big things about life. <laughs> Uh, I have to laugh now, but it, it it was very undermining to my sense of myself, and I'm like many white people in this. I was raised to have a pretty good opinion of myself. Right. It was really a shock to realize that, for example, maybe the women in my building at Wellesley couldn't get funded by foundations and grant givers, but not not because they wrote bad proposals, but because they weren't white. I had the whole knowledge system on my side. And also, incidentally, the banking and foundation systems, which are run by whites. And so I, I realized I had been given the benefit of the doubt. And I could no longer assume that the reason I got funded was that mine was the best work. Right. So that's a blow. So that's a blow to your sort of sense of your own skill to realize it. To, I mean, this is where we're at white privilege now, really, which is that you started to realize, 
this was not a reflection on your brilliance necessarily, but perhaps on all the advantages you had as a white person. Yes. The whole of the knowledge system working for me and the whole of the financial system giving me the benefit of the doubt. And in both cases, it was white people who were in charge of those systems. So I want to ask you then, so here you are, you have this epiphany, and then um, how did that translate into writing this now really famous kind of seminal piece on white privilege? How did you you get from this realization to, to writing it down? Well, I thought I had seen something huge that I hadn't been taught about. One could call it political, meaning having to do with power. And it was a matter of integrity to follow it. And I thought there was probably more there than the knowledge system and the money system working for me. So I asked myself, I asked my mind, um, what else do I have that I didn't earn Um, that is working for me as a white person. And my mind said, nothing. So I asked again in a more specific way, on a daily basis, what do I have that I know my colleagues of color don't have by listening to their stories of how they're treated by, as parents, as shoppers, as drivers, as newcomers in a community. What do I have that they don't have? And once again, my mind, which has the accreditation, the degrees from colleges, said nothing. But I thought I had seen something big, which was the upside of discrimination. It was the exemption from being discriminated against And it was also the fact of being voted for um, when I was in competition with other people who didn't have my advantages. And so I decided I'd better prey on it. And I went to sleep one night saying, but giving a prayer, but it, it wasn't the usual kind of prayer in which one asks for something. It was like a demand of my deeper self or of the powers in the universe that could answer this for me. I I demanded angrily, really, if I have anything I didn't earn except the knowledge system and the money system working for me, by contrast with my black friends, show me. And in the middle of that night, an example swam up, a a sentence swam up, and I flicked on the light, and I wrote it down, and I remember being terribly disappointed in it. It seemed like a trivial point, but it's all my mind was giving me, so I wrote it down. Now I think, and it became the first of... Um, 46 examples that swam up over the next three months. They were there in my subconscious, but I, my conscious mind was keeping the lid on them, was keeping them down. And I think this happens with many of us because we white, white people would rather feel pretty good about ourselves than to have anything that would even momentarily interrupt 
the sense that we've got what we deserve and we worked and earned it. So the thing that swam up that I felt was so disappointing was this statement. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. No. As I wrote it, I couldn't see that why I had been offered this bit of wisdom. But now I think it's very big. That fact keeps me from having to feel like the only and the lonely. And I grew up in white towns. And the towns I grew up with were much like many towns in rural Maine where a person of color will need to feel like the lonely or the only uh, um, at, ver at certain times. And the next night, another example came up. And then night after night, these examples kept coming up. And it makes me laugh now. I'm an English teacher, and they all came up fully punctuated. <laughs> now, Peggy, did they, so there, I have the 46. I'm looking at them right now as we're talking. Did they all come to you in your sleep? Virtually all. And um, virtually all came because I didn't know this stuff. We're raised not to know it. Yes. So all kinds of stuff came out at me that I hadn't consciously thought of. But, for example, when I shop, uh, I'm not never st followed by a store detective. But when I shop with a woman of color, uh, the security personnel sort of hover around saying things like, can I help you? Which is really code for, what, should you be in this store at all? And I had had those examples and I had seen them as examples of discrimination against people of color. But my subconscious mind said, said, fed them up to me again as examples and said, you have unearned advantage to walk freely in stores without anybody wondering what you're doing or whether you should be there. So I had quite, been quite aware of discrimination for my black colleagues, I'd heard quite a few of their stories, but I had no idea that their stories directly connected with my choices and freedom in life. Now I know their stories can be translated into my freedoms. And when you say that, do you mean that you feel partially responsible for their stories? No. Um, None of us is responsible for the history that got us to this point. The uh, 350 years of US, U.S. existence, starting with the Constitution, or the, starting with the Declaration of Independence, which has racist elements right in it, um, and coming up through the Constitution, and even through the Bill of Rights and right to the present time, a history has created unequal outcomes for us and limited freedom of choice for some people um, by contrast with greater freedom, freedom of choice for others. I do not feel responsible. I don't think it's rational for whites to feel guilty about having born into a system that gave us unearned advantage. We didn't invent the system, but it does make things somewhat easier for us. So I want to I spend a little time on this, Peggy, because it feels so, so important, you know, in the wake of Ferguson and all that's happened um, and the 
you know, all the all the media coverage and so on um, after the killing of Michael Brown in August, there's been a lot of discussion about white privilege and the and the disparity between how safe white people feel interacting with the cops versus how black people feel in this country. And and a lot of the controversy around white privilege seems to be around this question of guilt. And I'm I'm what I hear you saying is that white people should not focus on feeling guilty because they're born into this system. It's not their fault. And that really the issue is how do we work with it? How do we acknowledge it and kind of move forward? Is am I understanding you right? You are, and one thing I've said along these lines is a key question for me and others who come to see, yes, we have privilege, is can we and do we want to use some of our unearned advantage to weaken the systems of unearned advantage? And when I raised that question, and when I heard from colleagues in Minnesota that many whites were feeling extra guilty, I think that's perhaps because of Catholic and Lutheran teachings. When the Minnesotans said, can you help our people feel less guilty about whiteness? I decided I would uh, suggest a second metaphor other than the white, the knapsack. I, I wrote a paper called White Privilege and Account to Spend. And I proposed that in addition to the knapsack metaphor, which I'm not gonna throw away, we could see white privilege as a bank account we were given at birth, we who were born white, and we didn't ask for it, and we can't be blamed for it, but we can make a decision to spend down the bank account of white privilege to weaken the system of white privilege and even the odds. And because it's white privilege, even if we spend it down, it'll keep refilling we will continue to be given the benefit of the doubt by the majority of people in the U.S. And therefore, we will never go bankrupt spending down our bank accounts of white privilege. So what I hear you saying is use the power that you have to undermine the system. Yes, but, it's a, but you just put it in the imperative. Ah, how do you put it? You may choose. Aha. Uh-huh. It's, it's in your hands whether you would choose to use some of your white power to weaken the system of white power. Because this, I don't feel, for example, in the case of men, that they're obliged to use their male privilege to weaken the system. I see it's up to them. Now, I like to work with the ones who've decided to try to be more equitable in their lives. And sometimes I fear the, the, those who absolutely refuse to give up any male prerogatives. Um, but I don't think this can be forced. To this extent, it is still a free country for whites. It's up to us whether we will use our power to weaken the system of unearned advantage and what would that look like? Can you give me some examples, maybe from your life or from other people that you know, about ways to do that? How could I, as a white person, use my unearned advantage to help dismantle this system? Well, uh, it can be very concrete. In, in our town of Newton, twice I went to the poli- police departments and went, said, um, I object to your harassment of my black 
colleagues, families. Um, we are all members of this community. Now, the first time I was told, ma'am, we're just trying to protect you. And I didn't have words for that. But the second time it happened, I had my words ready. <laughs> okay. And, and when I was told, ma'am, we, meaning the police, are just trying to protect you, I said, no, this is a protection racket in which you have created the bad race relations that you claim to be protecting me from. And how did that go over? What happened? They were stunned. <laughs> I bet. Have a, a, a middle-aged lady with her hair in a bun um, and all her, uh, and a soft voice and good, very good grammar. They were stunned to have me on uh, use gangster language. <laughs> and um, another time, twice, I went to two different supermarkets and said, my African-American friends are tired of having to drive all the way into Boston to get soul food. And can't you stock some ham hocks and some chard and some collards and so on? Well, and chitlins. And they said, no, um, there's no call for those things. And I said, well, my colleagues are telling me they would buy them if they were available. Now, thanks partly to the fashionable nature of kale, the stores practically boast at how much soul food they have uh, available. So you can, but other things are um, terribly important. I made a list of 16 ways I use my white skin privilege to weaken the system. At one point in Bethesda, Maryland, a group of whites went door to door on the block we were living on, asking whether the other homeowners would agree not to sell if a black family moved in. And that happened. Now that was many years ago. Um, that was more. It was 40 years ago, and that black family is still there, and no white family moved out, or they might have moved out, but nobody moved out because of the black family. Also, in all transactions relating to hiring and promotion, you can ask searching questions about the process and do what you can, first of all, to increase the applicant pool so that it has uh, greater numbers of people of color or disabled people or gays and lesbians than it used to have. And you can track the processes. For example, tonight I'll be writing a letter that the um, person I'm writing about doesn't know about. So this is using white privilege without you know, flaunting it. But she saw a job she liked very much and made the application and applied. And in the course of that search, after she applied, they rewrote the job description to exclude her. Mm. Now, perhaps it was only a coincidence, but it's very unusual. So I can use my white power to raise questions about this in a way she can't. And is this an institution that you are connected with? Yes. I see. I see. So in every moment that you become aware, you can speak up as an advocate, it sounds like. Yes, you can. I, there, I have less at stake when I advocate for justice than a person of color does. There'll be 
accused of whining, making excuses, not understanding that the civil rights movement fixed all this. They will be accused of grandstanding and ego trips and intimidation, all kinds of things that they are accused of, I will not be accused of. And that's why I could write the paper that you're reading from. Um, a, a person of color writing about white privileges will not be believed in the way I'm believed. That was part one of my interview with Peggy McIntosh. Next week will be part two, when Peggy will describe the five phases of understanding and dealing with one's own white privilege. If you would like to read the essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, that we talked about today, Peggy asks that you actually email her directly at mmacintosh, that's without an A, at wellesley.edu. And we'll post that address at our website, safespaceradio.com as well. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you would like to, if you'd like to send the link to a friend, please go to our website and you can listen to it there, but you can also subscribe to get a weekly email to that week's show. You can also download the show onto your smartphone for your morning commute. You can write us a comment. We would love to hear from you. You can also, if you prefer, like us on Facebook or subscribe to the show through iTunes. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Mm-hmm.